Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. So if you've got a kid up to fifth grade, they're welcome to stay in the service. Maybe you want them in the service. I am just going to give you a a little bit of a warning. Uh, This is, um, we're going to read a part of the Bible that uh, is not safe for little ears. Let's put it that way, Um, which might be shocking to you, uh, but it's there. Uh, In fact, um, uh, there's a, I had a seminary professor named Jerem Bars, and commenting on this passage, Genesis 38 is a story about a woman named Tamar, and he says this about, uh, he says, you know, many evangelical and conservative Christians like to make rules about which books and DVDs, television shows, music is righteous for Christians, especially young people, to read, view, or hear. Well, this story of Tamar would be on the banned list of many Christian magazines, TV shows, youth ministries, and churches. I have yet to hear a sermon preached upon this passage. Well, you're gonna hear one this morning. Uh, So for somebody uh, last night said, you're so courageous, I said, or stupid. Uh, Those those things look similar sometimes. It is God's word, and it's there, and we're going to tackle it. And so if you're willing and able, would you stand? And I'm going to read for us from Genesis 38. These are the most important words that I'm going to speak this morning. Genesis 38, starting at verse 1. Now, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil 
wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is at the, on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify these, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out and with the, with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Holy Spirit, um, we need your help to make sense of this crazy part of your word. Would you help us open our eyes and our hearts to see Jesus? And we pray it in his name, amen. All right, you may be seated, please. Early one morning, a hungry wolf was prowling around a cottage at the edge of a village when he heard a child crying in the house. Then he heard the mother's voice say, hush, child, hush, stop your crying or I will give you to the wolf. Surprised but delighted at the prospect of so delicious a meal, the wolf settled down under an open window, expecting any moment to have the child handed out to him. But though the little one continued to fret, the wolf waited all day in vain. Then toward nightfall, he heard the mother's voice again as she sat down near the window to sing and rock her baby to sleep. There, there, child, there, there, the wolf shall not get you. No, no, daddy is watching and daddy will kill him if he should come near. Just then the father came within sight of the home and the wolf was barely able to save himself from the dogs by a clever bit of running. And the moral of that story is, do not believe everything that you hear, right? Do not believe everything that you hear. That is from Aesop's Fables. Aesop's Fables, you know, uh, are a, a bunch of moral uh, stories 
that are meant to give a, a moral example, right? Meant to teach you how to live and how to be a better person. The question this morning is, is the Bible a collection of moral stories? Is the Bible a, a, a group of fables or stories that are there to teach you moral lessons so that you can learn to live a better life, to uh, be a better person? The answer to that is no. And a passage like Genesis 38 makes that painfully uh, obvious. Uh, the Bible is not a collection of moral stories. The Bible is one story about one person. One story about one person. Even though there are lots of stories in the Bible, it's really one story about one person, and his name is Jesus. Right? Jesus himself said, as he was walking down the road after his resurrection, uh, to some of his disciples, he said, the whole Old Testament is about me. Everything in there is about me. And so our question this morning is, how is Genesis 38 about Jesus? So uh, we are um, uh, one week into the new year, right? Uh, how are your resolutions going? Right, you, got, you got one week in. How are you doing? A lot of people, uh, if they're uh, followers of Jesus, one of your resolutions is to read the Bible, right? How's that going? Right, one week in. How have you made it? Um, have you failed yet? Uh, as we think about the new year and what we need most, the things that would help us the most, um, what is it we need most in 2023? The thing that we need most is Jesus. To experience him more fully, to know him better, to, to rest in him deeper, um, to rejoice in him greater. Uh, more Jesus, more of Jesus. Uh, Robert Murray McShane um, was a pastor. He is famous for putting together a Bible reading plan, which many Christians use to read the Bible over the course of a year, the McShane Bible reading plan. Um, what did he believe was the point of the Bible? Why even do that? Why even try to read the Bible in a year? Well, look at what he said. He said, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ in all that is in him. That's the point. So how is Genesis 38 about Jesus? How do we see Jesus in this text? What is the truth that we need to learn about Jesus from here? How do we need to see him as more beautiful, more wonderful, more satisfying? So this sermon really only has one point. There's only one point to this sermon. Really, every sermon we preach here every weekend really only has one point. So here's what I want to do this morning. I just want to walk back through the text with you making some observations along the way, and then I wanna tell you what the one point is, uh, make some applications from that, and, uh, and then I'm gonna sit down, and we're gonna um, respond in song, okay? So, sound good? Right, here we go. So, going, looking back at this passage, 
it says there uh, that it happened at that time. At what time? What time? Genesis 38 is preceded by Genesis 37, right? And if we can think back a couple weeks, it's been a couple weeks when Ray preached on Genesis 37, what happened there? That's where we read the story of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers, right? His brothers who are jealous of him and decide to uh, throw him into a pit, and they're, they're going to kill him. Uh, but then one of the brothers comes up with the idea, hey, instead of killing him, let's make some money off of him, right? Wouldn't that be better? Uh, and you know how, whose idea that was? Judah's. Judah had the idea to sell him to uh, some Midianite traders who were passing by, and so they sell him, and off he goes to Egypt, and then his brothers take his cloak, and they dip it in blood, and they go back to their father and deceive him into believing that his beloved son was killed by a wild animal. And so it's after that, right? Uh, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah separates from his brothers. He goes to his friend's house, whose name was Hira. Hira lived in the city of Adullam. Um, Later in the Bible, uh, you will read that David, one time when he's fleeing from Saul, goes to the cave of Adullam, right? And so uh, Judah uh, goes to his friend, uh, and it says in verse 2, there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. It's the name of the Canaanite, not the daughter. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. It's good to pay attention to the words that the Bible uses for things, right? Notice, notice the words used here. It doesn't say Judah met a woman and, uh, and wooed her, and, um, and they fell in love, and they got married, What does it say? He saw her, and he took her, and he went into her. Um, They're the same uh, words. They're they're forceful words, violent words. They're the same words that are used in the story of David's adultery with Bathsheba. How David saw her from his balcony, and he took her, and he lay with her. And then he killed her husband. Judah and David were both men driven by their eyes and driven by their lust. They used their power as men in that culture to get what they wanted. It says, verse 4, she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan, the secondborn, and yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah, and Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. It's fascinating. In just a few verses, we get a picture of Judah who's not sounding like a very great husband and not sounding like a very good dad, right? Because he wasn't even there for the birth of his third son. And now we fast forward. Uh, Judah's sons are probably 15, 16, 17. And it says, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Uh, Not only has Judah married a Canaanite wife, married a Canaanite woman, but now he's taken a Canaanite wife for his firstborn son. Uh, And in Genesis, things never go well when the descendants of Abraham try to marry foreign wives. Verse 7 says, Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Not a ton of detail there, right? Why was he wicked? He was was wicked, and God put him to death. 
the only times God is mentioned in the entirety of Genesis 38, two times, the only time that he's mentioned is when he's putting someone wicked to death. How sobering is that? Um, you know, it would be an interesting verse to uh, read to your kids at bedtime, right? The, the firstborn child was wicked and God put him to death. Sweet dreams. Okay. Um, but, you know, kidding aside, it might shock some of you to think of God that way. Do you have a category for a God who judges wicked people? Then uh, Judah, verse 8, said to uh, Onan, after the death of Ur, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, what is this verse talking about? What is, when Judah says, perform the duty of a brother-in-law, what is that? Well, he's referring to a law uh, and a custom of that time that was called the uh, leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. The word levir is Latin. It just means brother-in-law. So it's the brother-in-law law. And what is the brother-in-law law state? Well, Deuteronomy 25 explains it. It says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, then the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take the brother's wife, then this brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. And then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, I love this, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. <laughs> you don't want to be the guy who had your sandal pulled off, right? If you're the brother-in-law, if, if, if you're the brother, your older brother dies, it's your duty, right? It's your duty to perform uh, this leveret marriage because leveret marriage was about ensuring offspring for the childless widow, right? It was about preserving the family line. It was not a sexual thing. It was a survival thing. And so what happened? What does Onan do? Verse 9 says, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Onan knew that if Tamar remained childless, then he would be the heir, right? He was the next in line. But he also knew that if Tamar had a son through him, that that son would carry on his brother's name, that he would be the heir, that he would lose his uh, place. Um, Onan was selfish. Maybe he even despised his older brother. But instead of just refusing to fulfill his duty, which he could have done and had his sandal pulled off, right? Instead of just refusing to fulfill his duty, he does something even worse. 
Onan took advantage of Tamar. The text says, whenever he went into his brother's wife, meaning he did so more than once. He wanted the gratification without the responsibility. He, he used the law, and most wickedly, he used Tamar for his own sinful, self-centered ends. And so the Lord put him to death also. So now, here is Judah, right? Which is ultimately his responsibility as the head of, of the family to make sure that this happens. He's lost his firstborn, his secondborn, and now what is he going to do? Verse 11 says, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. You know, as readers, we can guess from what we already know of Judah's character that he has no intention of giving his third son to Tamar. Instead of Judah doing a, a self-assessment and realizing, hey, maybe, maybe my sons were the way they were because of how they were raised, because of me. Instead of placing the blame on them or placing the blame on himself, he places the blame on Tamar. Right? He, he, um, he says, uh, it's, it's really her fault, and he, in essence, tries to wash his hands of her. Now, if you're here this morning and um, you don't, you don't, you're not sure what you think about Christianity uh, and um, wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, but you came to church, uh, and you, you might think that, uh, have, or have heard, that uh, the Bible denigrates women, right? That... that um, and you read a passage like this, you hear this and you go, exactly, right? This is, uh, this is exactly what I'm talking about. And um, I want to remind you this morning that we're not to read the Bible like a series of moral stories, like a series of moral examples. Um, that there's a difference in the Bible between what we call um, prescri- prescriptive texts and descriptive texts. That there are places in the Bible that prescribe what we are to do, uh, and then there are places in the Bible that simply describe a broken world and what's taking place. There is nothing prescriptive about this passage. There is nothing that is saying this is how we should act, right? It's simply describing the brokenness of the world. In fact, if you read the, the whole of the Bible, what you find is that women are elevated that women are are lifted up as fellow image bearers with men and given great dignity and respect. Uh, And so it's it's good to remember how we read the Bible really makes a big difference. And in Tamar's situation especially, this text leads us to empathize with her plight, to really empathize with her. Um, Jerem Bars uh, writes, he says, Tamar has been now in two marriages, neither of which can have been particularly happy or fulfilling. Since God judged these two men so severely, we must assume they were not exactly ideal husbands. She's been cast out from the family in which she ought to occupy a place of honor as the widow of the eldest son. It is her father-in-law, Judah, the head of the family who has treated her so poorly. She has lost her status as the intended mother of the future head and heir of the household. She faces the prospect of an empty life, 
For everyone in the communities around must know that Judah regards her as cursed and has therefore sent her away from her home. Her future seems to be bleak, for it is most unlikely that anyone will marry such a despised, rejected, and cursed woman or give a son to her in marriage. She has the prospect of a life of shame, dishonor, and childlessness in a culture that values women primarily for the children they bear. And so, what's going to happen? And this is where the story really gets crazy. Right? Uh, verse 12 says, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend, here are the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. Now, it would be so easy to judge Tamar, right? To judge her for what she's doing. Um, the Bible does not condone her actions. Um, remember, we're not reading this as a moral example to emulate. Um, the, word, the, the Hebrew word is interesting there, enayim, the, the place where Tamar goes to... Um, entrap her father-in-law and where she disguises herself as a prostitute. That word, enayim, is translated uh, eyes, right? Eyes. Uh, Also could mean judgment. And so uh, Tamar at eyes, right? At eyes, Tamar covers up everything but her eyes. And the question is, will Judah have the eyes? Will he have the judgment to recognize her, or will he be blinded again by his lust? Well, verse 16 says, He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Well, if you give me a pledge until you send it, He said, well, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, how about your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand? So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. It's good to know that the normal payment for a prostitute in this uh, day and age would have been much, much less than a young goat from uh, your herd. Tamar here is shrewd and smart. She does not trust Judah that he will follow through with his word uh, and that he will keep his promise. So she asks for a significant security deposit, right? She asks him for his staff and his signet and his cord, which would have been uh, equivalent to uh, giving uh, someone your driver's license uh, and your phone, Again, uh, Bars writes, he says, Judah's willingness to make such a substantial promise of payment to a prostitute and to give such a pledge to a woman whose character he knows nothing about perhaps tells us something about his lack of control of his passions, his sexual appetite, and also the weakness of his moral standards. 
So uh, when Judah sent, he sends the young goat, uh, probably because he wants his stuff back. He doesn't, he, he really can't go without it. Um, he sends the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. He did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. And so he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. And the men of the place said that no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the stuff or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this goat, you did not find her. What does Judah reveal? He's not concerned about what he did. He's concerned about his reputation. He's concerned about being laughed at. Um, Keep things looking good on the outside, but don't worry about the inside, the heart. And that kind of pharisaical spirit always manifests itself in um, uh, righteous indignation. And that's what we see. In verse 24, it says, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, and in the Hebrew, it's just two words, take, burn, bring her out. Let her be burned. Um, Judah's hypocrisy is on full display here, right? The, the, The double standard that her sin is worse than his sin and that she deserves the most extreme punishment for what she's done. Walter Brueggemann says that this narrative contains a radical critique of morality for those who will pursue it. Tamar has committed the kind of sin that good people prefer to condemn. Verse 25 says, as she was being brought out, she sends word to her father-in-law and says, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. She said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And if microphones had been invented back then, she would have dropped it, right? Like, boom, Roasted, right? You've been caught. Um, Do you remember when the prophet Nathan confronted King David after he had slept with Bathsheba and had her husband killed? And Nathan the prophet comes to David and he tells him a story. And he says, there was a rich man who had lots and lots of sheep But next to him lived this poor man who had this one sheep that was like his pet and he loved and fed and cared for and slept with. And this rich man took the sheep from the poor man and barbecued it for a dinner guest. And at that point, David is incensed and says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan says to David, you are that man. You're the man. And David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Judah, verse 26, identifies them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And all the commentators that I read this week say, this is the moment. This is the moment when Judah begins to change. 
when he finally confesses his guilt, when he finally acknowledges that he is the biggest sinner. We've been reading this uh, um, devotional book, kind of kids theology book to our kids at, at, at dinner time. And um, uh, one of the, we were reading one night, uh, one of the lessons was on God is perfect, right? And an illustration it used on the page, it, it, it gave a picture of a bullseye and an arrow and it said, God is perfect. He hits the center of the target every single time, right? And it went on to talk about God's perfection. And so I asked the kids after, afterward, I said, all right, kids, so God is perfect, right? Well, what about us? Like, if, if, if you were to compare yourself to God, where would you hit that target? And, you know, one of them was like, oh, you know, like a little bit off here. And another one was like, oh, over here, off on the page. And one of my kids said, well, I think, you know, like I would go to shoot the arrow and it would actually like go behind me. And... Uh, and it would hit the middle of a sin bullseye behind me, right? And I thought, kid, you got it. You got it, right? You understand. And here Judah gets it. He finally gets it. She is more righteous than I am. Um, and then there's this little sentence at the end of verse 26. It's so easy to just blow right by. It says, and he did not know her again. Judah is beginning to be transformed. He's changing. And, and I won't ruin it for you, but when, when we get to chapter 44 in three weeks, we're going to see Judah again. And he is going to act like a completely different man. He, he, he's going to act like an actual righteous man. And because of Genesis 38, because of this moment. Um, but finishing out our story, wrapping it up, it says, verse 27, now when the time of Tamar's labor came, there were twins in her, room, in her womb. And when she was in labor, one of them put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And there, finally, we found it. There is Jesus. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> what? I did not see him. Where is he? Perez, Perez, because when you read in Matthew chapter one, when Matthew is, is writing his genealogy of Jesus, right, the, the, his family line, the people that led up to his birth, Matthew has choices to make, right? And he can choose who he's going to include in Jesus's genealogy. And if you were writing your genealogy and who was in your family, you might write out a couple people, right? because you're pretty ashamed of them. And yet, in Matthew 1, look at what he says there. He, he says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, 
by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nation, and Nation, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And on and on it goes until you get to verse 16. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Perez and Judah and Tamar are in Jesus' family. Jesus, the perfectly holy, perfectly righteous son of God, So here's the one point of this sermon. You ready? The one point. Jesus is not ashamed to have Judas and Tamars in his family. Jesus is not ashamed to have Judas and Tamars in his family. Do you remember the religious leaders of Jesus' day, what they said to his disciples? They said, why does your, why does your teacher, your Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes? Because that's who's in his family. Jesus was the only one who would touch lepers. Lepers were unclean. They they would pollute you if you touched them. But when Jesus touched lepers, their disease didn't pollute him. His purity healed them, cleansed them. Jesus not ashamed to have Judas and Tamars in his family. Listen, I don't know what kind of sin you walked in here with this morning. Maybe you were like Judah, self-centered, driven by your passions. Maybe your sin is hidden. Maybe no one else sees it, but God sees it. Maybe you've been a hypocrite, decrying other people's sins while at the same time excusing your own. Maybe you're like Tamar. Maybe you've been sinned against. Maybe you have chosen to do things, you felt like you had no other choice, no other option, but you knew that they were wrong. The good news that I have for you this morning from Genesis chapter 38 is that Jesus is not ashamed to have Judas and Tamars in his family. The disobedience of Judah, the deception of Tamar, could not stop God from accomplishing his plan of salvation. Jesus' family is made up of liars, cheaters, stealers, adulterers, murderers, hypocrites, Tamars, Rahabs, Bathshebas, Judas, Davids, people like you and me. Your sin doesn't disqualify you from being in Jesus' family, not the first time and not the hundredth time. Grace isn't something that you have to reapply for. You don't, need to, you don't have to clean up your act in order to be loved and accepted by your Savior. His mercy always triumphs over our weakness and our sin. Jesus loves to take imperfect, broken, sinful people and begin to transform them often slowly, like Judah, over time. But as St. Teresa of Avila said, God can write straight with crooked lines. Jesus 
is not ashamed to have you in his family. And so once again, I quote Robert Murray McShane, I don't think I could say it any better. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love, and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him, Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah. Jesus, we thank you that you are so full of grace and mercy for sinners, that you are not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, to have us in your family. Oh, would we fall in love afresh with you this year and find in you that which our souls deeply long for. We give you praise and worship this morning. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.